Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. We're so thrilled, so thrilled that you're joining us this week. I am totally excited about this interview. Jasmine's going to be interviewing like one of my oldest friends in the world. And we've, we have known her for years. And she is, she has in the past done amazing work for animals. And then she really changed her career around and she's still doing unbelievable work for animals. So this is Amy Trakinski that I'm talking about, and she is the managing director of VegInvest. And she spends her time, I have to say, I'm pretty envious of her, though she does seem to work like insane hours, but she spends her time investing in vegan companies. So she finds like startup vegan companies and and gives them money. Isn't that fun? Mm. And all these companies are working to change the world for animals. So this interview uh, should also get you up to date on what's going on in the whole world of, of startups. And I really promise you, it's, it's a lot that's going on. You're, you're going to be happy to hear about it. It's a great chat. And she actually tells the story of meeting you. I won't spoil it for our listeners, but it does involve an elephant and running down the street. More than one elephant. <laughs> Got more it. Yeah. Elephant. And this week on the bonus segment, we'll be hearing more of my conversation with Amy, including her extensive legal work on behalf of animals. She'll tell us the story there. So as always, if you're a Flock member, you'll get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up. Or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. And that would entitle you to attend our unbelievably good conversations, our COVID time feature, uh, our Flock Friday Zoom calls. They're at 4 p.m. Eastern. And they really have been so good of late. There's the, I, I find it's like having a little support group. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much if you're in the Flock. So before we get to the interview, I am coming off of a weekend where I was in Vermont. So that was a beautiful time to be in Vermont, like such yeah, a big part of why timing. I was one of the things I was so excited about in moving back from L.A. to the East Coast was these falls, these gorgeous seasons that we were blessed with here in in the East Coast. And Vermont did that times a million for me with its picture perfect fall days and its gorgeous foliage. I was there at the peak time for the leaves to be changing and I was able to explore Montpelier. I went to Burlington and You loved Montpelier. Oh yes, I loved it. I never I like I've heard of Montpelier because at one point in my life I learned the capitals of all the states. But <laughs> I, I've just, you know, you hear of a lot of places in Vermont. You hear of the skiing. Mm. I've heard of Brattleboro. I've heard of Burlington. I've never heard of uh, anybody really talk about Montpelier. I'm sure people in Montpelier are and talking you loved about it. it. Yeah, loved it, loved it. I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed. It's funny because I'm driving back here. I was driving through Albany and I, it was just like, you know, big and skyline and industrial looking and you know, massive, but Montpelier is like quaint and, you know, sweet and charming. And it's such a different type of state capital, but. Well, it's kind of a different kind of state. It's, it is very, it's, it, yeah, it's it, extremely, you know. It's, and I mean, I wasn't there, so I didn't have the personal experience. I guess I've been there. 
Yeah, I've been there a few times. Well, but, yeah, uh, and it's very but progressive. It's not like other places. Yeah, it's funny because like it's very progressive, but then it has these tiny little towns that have general store. It's like living in the future and the past at, at the, the same, same time. time. Yes, <laughs> and they always say about Vermont that people who live there really love it. Like they've chosen to live there, and that's true. Like people in Vermont really talk about how much they love it. You know, there's definitely a lot of animal exploitation, but there's a, there's certainly animal exploitation everywhere. I'm not saying it's just in Vermont, but it, as much as progressive politics is a part of the state, so is dairy, which is obviously the opposite of progressive. Yeah, like there's a cow on every picture. Pretty much. Like you see Vermont and there's a cow. Yeah. Like there's, they think dairy is just adorable. I don't, you know, I don't get that part. Like they're very progressive in some things, but. You know, I passed in Burlington, there was a Ben and Jerry's of course, and there was a, giant sign on it that said end white supremacy and i was like go ben and jerry's but i mean dairy is sort of like one of the manifestations of white supremacy so end dairy ben and jerry's and thanks for the vegan yeah, ice cream ben and jerry's is making some delicious vegan ice cream just make Amazing. just vegan ice cream speaking of vegan like i looked on happy cow for you well you know because it was kind of entertaining as well looking for some vegan restaurants i mean there aren't any like like mm. vermont vermont needs more vegans yeah, well, well, I'm working on it because I was looking at, you know, hopefully getting more informed about the possibility of net zero living. And I met with a company that builds net zero houses that are supposed to be affordable. A lot of the things they do are in lower income communities and and also middle class income communities. And it was really enlightening to learn about all of the op options that there are for alternative energy. And it's funny because I also looked at some old houses, not I didn't go in, but I, I drove past some that are on the market. And once you start to go down the net zero route, like these non net zero houses seem so it seems so silly to like, <laughs> like once you start thinking, oh, yeah. I could actually live off the grid or close to off the grid. Then you start to look at these other houses and you realize like they aren't good for the environment. You could live off the grid or close to off the grid. And it's it's extremely appealing to think about that, especially in comparison to the other way. It's funny because I remember when we lived in Soho on West Broadway, there, Natalie Portman had a shoe line. I'm sure I've told this story before. And there was this giant billboard of her in front of her shoe store. And it said, Natalie, it was vegan shoes. And it said, Natalie Portman, walk with a conscience. And I kept thinking like, yeah, or walk without one. I mean, that's the implication is when you look at a net zero home, you're suddenly faced with what the alternative is, which is like sucking up resources. And obviously it's not an option for everyone, but it should be. It damn well should be. And well, yeah. I mean, I'm looking in this direction as well. And one of the things that's so frustrating is that there's it's very hard to find contractors or, or real estate listings or, or any information on retrofitting current housing to be more environmentally friendly. Of course, if you buy it, you know, built for that, it's going to be better, I think, always. But we have to do that. We have to stop like throwing all of this oil into heating all of these houses that are not well insulated, which none of our houses are. When yeah. you start going down this road, you realize like insulation is like we need insulation to save the world. Should we start a new podcast on the on insulation? I don't know. But yeah, I agree that net zero is the goal and the best way to achieve it right now seems to build. But we also have to find out more about retrofitting. But I'm into building. I, it kind of reminds me of you remember we've talked about it before. 
that book, The Good Life. Right. By Helen and Scott Nearing. Yeah. And they moved, you know, this was in the 1930s and they moved to Vermont and um, and bought a bought an old farmhouse and started to raise some food and went well, they were already vegan and they were cool, they're very cool people. And there, a whole chapter in there about how ridiculous, like, like all they wanted to do was tear down that old farmhouse. They say people buy them because they're quaint, because they're cute. They're they're You, you need to build yourself a new stone house. That is not like a sieve in the Vermont winters. And it's like they were so ahead of their time. It's just crazy. I should so look that's up what, where that's they what went. Yeah, that's what you're looking to do. They didn't stay in Vermont because I think they went to like this quaint little village of Stowe or something like that. And mm-hmm. then it turned into a skiing. Like they became the center of the skiing industry. So mm-hmm. they ultimately moved to Maine. Hmm. But yeah, they were so ahead of their time. And this is everything else we have to figure out how to build better houses and 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 at least insulate the old ones. You're you're on you're on the right road and Vermont is on the right road. Yeah. Except for the vegan thing. Getting back to the vegan thing. Like what the hell? There's also like a particular air of you know, like there's a pride around the dairy. Like we were just talking about the dairy. There's also a pride around like the backyard chickens and it's funny because I got in a conversation with someone about about these chickens, about like backyard laying hens. And this person seemed to really understand, you know, purported to understand veganism. Like there wasn't a hostility. There was an openness. But he he ended his understanding about the chickens. He was like, well, I mean, I mean, they're chickens. That, And then he and then he explained that that at this one place uh, where there's these chickens who are used for eggs several of them were not being taken care of. So his wife sort of adopted them. And and he was like, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with keeping chick- chickens for eggs. And I was like, well, you know, a lot of them, they come from the same hatcheries as factory farmed, as factory farmed eggs. And he explained, he was like, well, the chickens my wife adopted, they, they were given names. So they will not be, they will not be killed ever because they have names. And I just started thinking we should just name the billions of them just start yeah. some kind of giant Google Doc that the whole community, the whole vegan community shares and just start. Can we re- just name them all like Jeff and and Hildegard and then they have names and Jeff then we can't kill them. and Hildegard. Sure. <laughs> that sounds good. Um, yeah. So it was interesting to chat with him about that. And it still seems. But he was very, or at least his wife was. It sounded like he was the way you told me the conversation. He was devoted to his pet chickens. But in his head, he just totally conflated this with backyard laying hens, as if pets are the same thing. People do not treat backyard laying hens as pets. They kill them after three years or two yeah. years or three years, like whenever they stop laying and they just recycle them, you know, like every three years. And, yeah. and I remember this one place we saw in Portland, and I'm sure this isn't common. They had the chickens had the whole backyard, except for the fact that they were in a cage and they just moved the cage around. So the chickens were always in a cage, but somehow I think these people were deluding themselves into because you know they they could peck on some grass and then and then when they were done pecking on that grass and finding all the whatever they eat the worms or whatever they could peck on other grass. So like like this is how people treat their backyard laying hens and I'm sure there's much worse treatment than that. So pets are not the same thing as backyard laying hens. Hmm. It's just not the same thing. Don't conflate these things. And and like this guy, if you're going to have pets, then you're going to have chickens for a long time. 
who are not laying any eggs. I don't want to old Jeff, little Jeff and Hildegard. It was a great trip, though. I do. You know, it was it was sort of very kind of uh, what's the word? Melancholy, like, but not in a bad way. I think melancholy isn't necessarily a bad thing. Like it was sweet. It felt cathartic. It felt like the world is really changing. And because we're on pause from like these gatherings that we're used to going to, we have these opportunities to sort of reassess our lives in the quieter moments. I really miss the gatherings. I miss a crowded, cozy pub. I miss Marie's Crisis, the piano bar in the West Village. I miss like, uh, you know, just getting together and the boisterousness uh, and and the possibilities of a crowded city. But in the, in the lack of that, it, I've really been confronted with, well, I mean, shit's bad. And so what is my role? What is my moral imperative in that? In that? And it's, of course, to like be vegan, be an animal activist, be anti-racist, possibly do a few other things that I'm currently considering, and then also just make choices to be in, in closer alignment with my worldview, which includes exploring these things that are totally mysterious to me, which like include net zero living. I don't know. I mean, I'm not particularly good at that. I use paper towels. I use compostable, compostable this and that. Or compostable this. Paper towels excessively. Or compostable this and that that never composts. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like I don't, it's a big learning curve for me, but if we can do it, then why not? I- yeah. And then we can talk about it and and, and we can hear from other people who are doing it and right. learn from them. People used to speak about like middle age uh, crises. And as I don't know, I'm turning 41 this month. You can that's middle aged or it's not middle aged, whatever. But I don't think I'm in a crisis. I think that I'm in an opportunity because when I was younger, I thought everything was just preamble. I didn't realize I was already living my story. I thought that I was in like the the before part of my story. And now kind of being confronted in a new way with like my mortality, the mortality of our country, et cetera, et cetera. Then I get to make choices that will lead to the rest of my life. I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine who's very young. She's in her 20s. And when I was telling her about this, she was shocked that I was looking at a house that could be my forever home. Like it was so foreign to her to think about doing that. And all I kept thinking was this. She doesn't realize yet, but this is her story. She's already living it. So anyway, the point is we have one life. What are we going to do with it? And how are we going to do it? And how are we going to do it the best? I think the point is, is since when is 41 not (laughs) middle-aged? I'm so Uh, stuck on that. Do you think it, I mean, I guess How long are you planning on living? I mean, hopefully, Admittedly, it's the beginning of middle-aged. Yeah, I guess so. Sure. It's middle-aged. I certainly have have so much more gray, gray hair than I used to. Like, I have none saw my mom this weekend and she told me that she goes gray in like a headband like it's just the ear the top and the other ear and that's like my graying pattern it's a very weird graying that's pattern funny. i would prefer to just go gray if we're gonna do it let's do it i like to do things all in totally like you can go gray in really unattractive ways and you can go gray in incredibly beautiful ways i'm the former it is not a simple process well the person who has gone gray in the best way is Amy Trukinski, who's our guest today. God, that is such a great point. Yeah, like that uh, we should have planned that, but we didn't. She's. She I mean, we're going to get to that interview in a moment, but you should Google her because, like, literally, the most gorgeous hair on the planet. 
So, and just all beautiful silver hair. Anyway, let's talk about our Henhouse Supports Vegan Businesses, which is a uh, program that we started in sort of reaction to the fact that so many businesses are suffering in the time of COVID. And so we try to shout out some that have hit our radar. Either we've patronized them or you've told us about them. In the past week, we definitely make sure to always include Black-owned businesses as well. If you're interested in taking part in this, go to ourhenhouse.org slash vegan businesses and fill out that form and we'll make an announcement about it. Do you want to start with this sure. first one? Our first one we know about thanks to our listener, Shreya. It's possibly Shreya. I'm not sure. And this is a Black-owned business. It's called Debbie Blue. And it is a small Black woman-run vegan nail polish business. It's in St. Louis. Uh, but don't worry. Don't worry. You can order. Their products are made in-house and they are completely committed to providing clean, cruelty-free, fun products like DIY mani-pedi kits. Uh, you know, you have lots of time on your hands. Make your nails look nice. So it's great for a quarantine spa day. I could use one of those, I'll tell you. And you can find them in order at Demi Blue Natural Nails, all one all one word. And it's D-E-M-I Blue Natural Nails dot com slash shop. And they're on Instagram, too, at Demi Blue NN. All right. I'm checking that out. I'm following them right now. If you're interested in a vegan, plastic-free, all-natural deodorant, then this next announcement is for you. Impact Veganics is not only vegan and plastic-free, but according to their website, they are. Uh, they said that as part of their recent launch, they've restructured the company to donate 100% of profits to animal rights organizations to help the charge for animal liberation. Wow, that's so great. They are currently in the midst of a campaign with Earthlings director Sean Monson to donate to his production company, Nation Earth. Sean Monson's an incredible activist. I spoke with at an event earlier this year, right before COVID, that he was also attending for the book Voices for Animal Liberation and that I am a contributor to, edited by Brittany Michelson, and he was there. He's just an incredible force. So if you're a human who sweats, which I, I sweat a lot, must be my, my middle age, and you're tired of rubbing and rolling and spraying <laughs> toxins under your pits, or you're tired of buying natural deodorant that doesn't work and doesn't help animals, it sounds like this is for you. It certainly sounds like this is for me. Because I love the fact that you can actually get a deodorant that helps animals. I mean, that is like the essence of our hen house is how do you use your skill and your platform to help animals? And this person was like, I'll start a deodorant company and help animals. I love that. So you can order them at createanimpact.org. Check that out. Impact Veganics. All right. Our final business, and I have not heard of them, and I'm super excited to hear of them. It's called Honest Pastures. And they make plant-based alternative meats. You can get the those meats shipped straight to your door. Their motto is delicious food comes from delicious ingredients. And some of their products include beef steak, jackfruit beef ribs, corned beef. Oh, God, I love corned beef. I haven't had it in ages. I think I might not have had it in since before I was vegan. Honest bacon, vegeroni, pork chop, holiday Montreal chicken roast. Uh, you can also get a sampler pack to try some of the best-selling varieties. And you mm. can find them at Honest pastures.com. Wow. Now we have one more announcement, which is not a vegan business. And that's uh, the 28th annual Animal Law Conference. And there is still time to register. It's presented by the Center for Animal Law Studies, Lewis and Clark Law School, and the Animal Legal Defense Fund. This is the this conference has been going on every year for as long as I can remember. 
It's the longest running animal law conference in the world. And it's really an important event for anyone interested in animal law. They have some great panels lined up. And the conference is going to be held virtually this year, of course, and that's from October 23rd to 25th. And the theme is Impacts on Animals in a Changing Climate. Talk about important topics. They're going to feature experts from around the world. You know, these Jonathan Saffron Four is the keynote. He's the keynote. And, and these virtual conferences, I mean, all right, there's a lot, you know, it's really nice to go to the conference and meet people, but it's a hell of a lot easier to just sit down at your computer if you want to learn stuff. And they can get speakers from everywhere. It's kind of cool in a way. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a role for it. For more information and to see the agenda and all the speakers and to register, go to Animal Law Conference. That's all one word, animallawconference.org. Please do. We'll be there. I'm looking forward now, to it. Now let's, let's get to the gray-haired wonder. She gonna get mad at me for saying that? I don't know. She might. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Amy. So Amy Jakinski is the managing director of VegInvest, which is a mission-driven. Check that out. Mission-driven, not just money-driven. Mission-driven venture capital fund focused on helping to take animals out of the supply chain. And to date, VegInvest has invested in over thirty early-stage companies. You know, that's when it's hard to get the money. That's I, I love these investment outfits that that invest in people who are trying to start. Once you've succeeded, it's easy to get money. Anyway, early stage companies creating plant and cell-based replacements for meat, dairy, eggs, seafood, and leather. Before helping launch VegInvest, Amy was a partner at the animal law firm Egert and Drakinski, where she litigated on behalf of national animal protection organizations, grassroots advocacy groups, and individual clients. She has been working for animals for her entire career, and she will be joining Jasmine right after this. The Our Hen House podcast is brought to you in part by Forager Project. California crafted since 2013, Forager Project is an organic, plant-based, family-owned and operated food company creating innovative, delicious-tasting products sourced from nature's finest ingredients. That's nuts, seeds, ancient grains, and fruits and vegetables. Crafted by fellow foragers in its own unique purpose-built creamery, the only 100% organic plant-based facility of its kind, Forager Project's family of foods include totally organic and 100% vegan yogurts, nut milks, sour cream, kefirs, shakes, and butter. Let me tell you about Forager Project's vote campaign, which I'm especially excited about. Forager recently announced its commitment to help cultivate democracy. During the next month, Forager Project will be shifting packaging on its yogurts, kefirs, and milks to encourage consumers nationwide to get involved and vote this November. And they're launching a broader effort with organic and paid advertising to encourage everyone to vote this November 3rd. I'll be voting, and I sure hope you will be too. They want you to cultivate democracy and vote. So get involved at foragerproject.com slash vote and follow Forager Project at at Forager Project. Welcome to our hen house, Amy. Hi, Jasmine. Thank you for having me. It's funny to talk to you in this capacity because you're such a good friend of mine and I'm in touch with you like 
every single day. And now it's like, oh, let's let's be official. Yeah, I mean, about how many it. texts a day do you think we? I, I don't know, like sixty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just guessing. Is there anything left to say, Jasmine? No, the this thus concludes this interview. Thank you for joining us today. <laughs> anyway, okay, so I you were on our hen house many years ago. I think you helped us do a review of something. I'm trying to remember what oh, it was. Yeah, it was the one about those like. Avatar. Oh, Avatar. 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 It was Avatar. Yes. That's funny. Oh my gosh. Amy, that was in, that was February 28th, 2010. Oh my God. And I remember we got out of that theater like 11 o'clock at night or something. And then you made me do that at like midnight. (laughs) When I got home. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay. I don't. <laughs> well, okay. So what has been happening for you since then? Not much. Let's start with the next day. What did you have for breakfast? <laughs> anyway. Okay. So let's, let's start off uh, by talking about your current work in the investment world. And then, and then we'll talk a little bit about your journey. So you are the managing director at Veg Invest. Can you tell us what Veg Invest is and its mission? Sure. Uh, well, Veg Invest is uh, an investment trust, and we invest in early stage companies that are working toward removing animals from, quote unquote, the supply chain. So mostly what we do is invest in, in companies who are creating replacements for animal products, mostly foods. We've been around for about five years, going on five years. In, in a nutshell, that's what Veg Invest does. We've invested in about 30 33 companies, I think, mm. I counted the other day. It's it's funny because I was just joking when I said, like, what have you been doing since then? But, you know, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, when we when we last had you on our hen house, <laughs> that, this wouldn't have well, even been it. I know, I know. This, <laughs> I was too busy texting you to, like, organize an interview. But th- this wouldn't have even been on the radar, something like this. I mean, this is sort of, it feels to me anyway, as someone on the outside, like a pretty new type of effort to change the world for animals. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think 10 years ago, there was a little, there was some effort going on in this, in this area. HSUS had a fund, I, I don't know if it was 11 years ago, but certainly around that time. So they were s- some of the early pioneers uh, wading into venture capital to really help lift up these these companies, you know, trying to work for the animals on this front. One of the early companies I think they invested in was uh, Daya Cheese. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's been going on. It was a bit under the radar. And I think these days, uh, happily, uh, this, you know, I think it's, it's sort of termed in the greater world, the alternative protein space. And I think more and more activity, not just not just on the on the part of so-called vegan investors, but um, investors sort of out there in the world are really taking a, a keener interest in this space, which is amazing. Well, and I know that this is a big question, but what are some of the companies that Veg Invest has put money into that you have high hopes for? Oh wow! Well, you know, obviously we put money into them, so we have high hopes for all right. of them. One of the companies who we work very closely with is a company called Wild Earth. Um, I think you've even had the founder, Ryan Bethencourt, on the show. Mm-hmm, yeah. So Wild Earth is a plant-based pet food company that used biotechnology to sort of develop its product. And it actually just launched, it's available all over the United States, and it just launched in India, actually, within the last couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And at least upon its launch, it was, I think, the number one or the number two uh, pet food in India. 
So we'll see how that progresses. Let's see, another company who we invested in a very early stage company is called Renegade Foods. Renegade mm-hmm. is, uh, is based in uh, San Francisco and or Berkeley, California, more specifically. And they're creating a plant-based charcuterie. So they're doing mm-hmm. salamis, that kind of thing. It's super early stage, but we have very high hopes for them. They just actually went onto the menu at Crossroads which you know very well. Um, mm-hmm. One of the premier vegan restaurants in the country, and it's based in LA. Um, yeah. So yeah, and you know, I could name, I, I love all the companies who we work with. And, and, you know, so many of them were founded by people who are, you know, every bit as passionate as I am about reducing animal suffering, um, trying to kind of stop, you know, the environmental degradation called by, caused by animal agriculture or, you know, address issues um, connected to human health, disease, et cetera, that are caused by animal products. So different founders come at it differently, but it's very inspiring to work with these folks who are kind of all in on starting these companies that are going to hopefully make a huge difference. Totally. I have a few other companies that you've invested in pulled up, Just, Veggie Grill, Rebellious Foods, Good Catch, Alpha Foods. It's like, these are some game-changing companies. I mean, th- this is yeah. a this is the world changing right here. And I know that you've been vegan for a really long time. I, I have a lot more questions about Veg Invest, but just to push pause on that for a second, you've been vegan for how long? I've been vegan for about twenty five years. Uh-huh. Um, way back in the nineties, I went vegan after a light bulb. You know, almost literally uh, when when on, I I found out about egg laying hens. I'd always been an animal lover, and I actually gone to law school back in the eighties uh, to practice this thing called animal law, which I, which didn't really exist at the time. I found out when I when I actually after I got to law school, and it wasn't until after I got out of law school that I you know, and I, it's still hard to believe it took that long and it was such a process to kind of put the pieces together in my own mind. But I think so much of, of animal exploitation connected, you know, to factory farming was kind of hidden that it, it wasn't until sometime after law school, I found out about laying hens and um, I went vegan like that and uh, started practicing as a, as an animal lawyer. Mm. So, many years. Yeah. Yeah. You, uh, and can you actually tell the story of how you and Marianne met? Because it's such a it's such a good story. I just want to make sure our listeners <laughs> know about it. Sure. Well, around that time that um, my former partner and I decided to open a practice to to practice what we at the time called animal rights law. As most of your listeners know, animals don't have have very few rights under the law. So I think thereafter, I think uh, the you know folks started to kind of call it animal law as opposed to animal rights law. But anyway, in those early days of our practice, we had joined the Animal Law Committee at the New York City Bar Association, which was, was at the time one of the only existing animal law committees um, connected to state or, or city bar associations. Or it might have been the first to the first committee. And anyway, so I, I think I met Marianne, or I, I spied Marianne at the end of a long table, the formidable Marianne Sullivan. So I don't even think we'd met at that point. And sometime 
uh, soon thereafter, I attended a conference at Pace Law School. They used to have these wonderful, and some of the earliest, again, animal law conferences. And I met Marianne briefly, a quick hello. And that night, I attended a demo, a demonstration against Ringling Brothers Circus. Um, it was their practice back in the day, the day before the, the circus opened at Madison Square Garden in New York City to walk the elephants and other animals through the Midtown Tunnel because they're, they were, uh, I don't know, the, the railroad cages or whatever, um, the train cages were stopped in, in Long Island. In, in, I'm sorry, in Queens. So they walked through the tunnel into Manhattan and then made a big show of walking the animals to Madison Square Garden. And it had developed into actually like a sort of a celebratory event um, where lots of families uh, with kids attended every year. Of course, animal people thought differently about this. And it became a an opportunity to demonstrate against the circus. And every year, um, a bunch of activists would follow this this sad parade of animals being led uh, to Madison Square Garden. So that year, a little baby elephant um, named Kenny and, and a few other baby elephants had died under mysterious circumstances in, in Ringling's custody. So there was that added incentive to show up at this dem- demonstration, and a chant started to rise up out of uh, the uh, the group of activists saying, where's Kenny? Where's Kenny? And mm-hmm. Marianne was also at that demonstration. And we ended up chasing and running after this parade of, of ele- most, mostly the elephants were sort of showcased in this parade. And we, for however, I think it's a couple of miles to Madison Square Garden from the tunnel, but we chased these animal handlers and and the elephants all the way chanting where's kenny where's kenny and and friends ever since i love that it's such a good first story uh i love that so okay uh lots of questions i could ask you but i just going back to the investing i assume that since you are an early stage investor at the point that you invest most of these companies don't have much of a track record yet so what are the elements that you're looking for when you are deciding whether to invest in a really new company? Like first, what are the kind of products or services you are interested in? Most of the the, the companies we invest in are creating products as opposed to services. There are a lot of great services for people who are trying to transition to a more plant-based diet. That doesn't tend to be our focus. You know, you can't focus on everything. But our sort of investment thesis is really about uh, investing in direct replacements for animal products, as opposed, let's say, to a drink or a snack that might accidentally be vegan, or that's accidentally, as we say, vegan. But they're, mm-hmm. they're you know, that let's something like a potato chip. It might be the world's best potato chip, but potato chips are, are generally already free of animal products. We focus on replacements for animal products. The first thing I think we look at is the is the founder or the founders of the company. We have to believe this is a very hard thing, you know, to mm-hmm. to start a company from scratch and then grow it to where it's going to be very impactful. In this world, impact equals size. These are companies who are aiming to have a very far reach. So the first 
thing, I think, you know, any investor, at least one of the things any investor is going to look at is the strength of the founders. After, of course, the initial assessment, does this, does what, you know, does what they're doing fit into our investment thesis? So it's those two Mm -hmm. things. Thereafter, I mean, the business plan is important, but that's going to, that tends to change a lot over the first couple, few years uh, of the company. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned the strength of the founders. Can you elaborate on that? Like what kind of people are you looking for specifically? Like those who have been working in in entrepreneurship for a while or like you're not going to necessarily accept someone who has is, is has a complete career pivot and is like oh i've got this idea well, yeah we do yeah, we do, do that actually we do. okay so like what are you like what kind of people what would the qualities be or does it vary too much to be able to answer well, that? Well, I think certain, I think independent, I think like nose to the grindstone, I'm going to figure out how to do this by hook or by crook. We're going to get this done. They have to be able to, you know, be flexible and not be so wedded to, to one way of doing things. Mm-hmm. Because I, again, oftentimes, if, you know, a, a founder will find themselves having to reimagine what they're doing within a very relatively short amount of time. So we look right. for people who are agile in that way and are willing to do that, but always with the goal of uh, the goal remaining the same, the goal being for whatever reason they come at it, taking animals out. Mm-hmm. And we, we make that very clear with, with the companies we invest in from the get-go. We have to have a meeting of minds on that. So that should have been the first thing I said. You know, frankly, some of some of the founders of the companies we've invested in are not vegan. Many are, but some are not, and um, they're coming at this for other reasons. But we have to have a lot of clarity around the fact that should they decide to incorporate, let's say, it's mm-hmm. the food and animal ingredients to whatever they're doing, animal input, then we would need to take our money out. Yeah, that's got to be interesting. Also, with like having your legal background to, because I, I, as a non lawyer, don't know how one would accomplish that since companies grow and they scale and then they get acquired. Right. And then what happened? Like, I, I, I'm speaking out of turn here, but like, what, like, I would be scared that, like, oh, down the line, they'll be so successful. And I, as the investor, helped to make them that successful. And then they get acquired and suddenly there's animal exploitation involved. So, I mean, I don't no, even know what my I think I, there, I totally understand the concern. And I, you know, I think that it's a legitimate question. I think early on when we're investing, we try to come up with certain kinds of legal agreements uh, whereby uh, the company is agreeing not to use animal inputs. And again, if they do, there are certain uh, remedies for that in terms of us being able to to pull out of the company. I think later on, um, and I had this concern when I first started doing this work, so I completely understand it. Like, why would a company, why would a goal of a company like this be uh, to be acquired by some food giant that who is, mm-hmm. you know, uh, who is exploiting animals in all kinds of different products? Mm-hmm that they specialize in. And, you know, I've, I've found, well, two things on that front. I mean, the companies we invest in are not small mom and pop, um, or the goal is not to remain small and bespoke and sort of just be available in a, in, you know, a very limited number of places. The goal is to get big. That's why they're looking for 
venture investment to begin with. Right, right. So oftentimes, unless, you know, it, it's a much harder road, road to hoe if you are going to, if your plan is to grow your company into some mm-hmm. corporate giant, a quicker way to sort of expand, get, you know, the products you're making or, mm-hmm. or whatever you're doing out there is, is in fact, to be acquired. Or as we've seen with Beyond, have an, have a IPO and go public. But the interesting thing is these days, you know, these, these big, you know, corporations, I don't think for the most part, obviously I can't, I can't speak for them, but I think, you know, what we see is there's such a keen interest in plant-based and alternative proteins, et cetera, that these bigger corporations are almost looking to these smaller ones as a way of doing R&D, research and development into how they can bring these offerings, add these offerings. Because I think they, they understand this is the way of the future. Right. So to vegans who are concerned that this somehow is selling out, I've heard that. I understand that and respect that concern. But if the idea is to get as many people eat, replacing as much of what they consume, uh, as much as, of, of, as many of the animals that they consume, replacing that with a plant-based alternative, I'm all for that. Oh, for sure. I totally agree with you. I mean, I understand on a, I understand like on a personal level, if someone personally was like, I don't want to necessarily get that toothpaste because the parent company is like, you know, tests on animals. So I'll get that one instead. But yet, like, that's just a personal thing. But once you're looking at it from not a self-focused perspective, it isn't actually about us. And it's not necessarily about where we spend our toothpaste money. It's about where the world spends their toothpaste money. You know, like I'm not anti, well, I I mean, fundamentally I'm anti-capitalism, but I also play the game of capitalism because we don't have enough time to be so persnickety, in my opinion. We have to scale up Mm -hmm. veganism in major ways that are going to be not necessarily in harmony with our ethical beliefs all the time. Well, right. I mean, I think we we live in the world we do, and it's and the world is literally on fire. So, animal agriculture is so harmful to us, to the animals, to the planet that I, I think we need to work as quickly as possible to address right. that. And and this is one way of doing it. It's not the only way of doing it, but but this is one way. And I don't think remaining as pure to our values as well, again, I don't want to criticize that because I, again, anybody who's doing anything to lighten their footprint on this planet, I applaud them. But I think it takes expansive thinking to address these problems yeah. in time. You know, the clock is ticking as, as we, as it's never been clear. Yeah. So we often hear that the people who are great at starting companies aren't necessarily the best at running them. Do you find that that's true? And like, how do you address it? I mean, I think that's, sometimes the case, not all the time. I think sometimes, you know, it takes a certain kind of of person to get a company off the ground. And then somebody with maybe somewhat different skill set to run it Mm -hmm. at, at the point it gets to be a certain size. I think oftentimes the founders who, you know, a founder is is usually the, the chief executive officer at least at the beginning of the company, at least one of the founders is. Oftentimes, I think those founders realize that and understand it. 
And at that point, mm-hmm. would, are willing to bring in somebody else who maybe has like a very long, you know, resume working with, with larger companies, who has sort of a more uh, corporate expertise. So that person can be brought in, the founder can still play a role. So I, you know, I don't think it's always sort of a fight to the death <laughs> right. um, to get a, to get a, a founder to give up the, the reins of the company, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Just taking a bigger step back, like the thousand foot high view here, what are you most excited about right now that's going on in terms of vegan companies, whether they're ones that you've invested in or they're ones that are beyond Veg Invest specifically? Just as a longtime vegan with <laughs> a history in animal law and animal activism who's been very, very involved in the vegan and animal rights communities for decades, like what, what tickles you? <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, I think what tickles me and why I, I kind of made the shift to this kind of work as opposed to practicing as a lawyer is that, you know, and I've often said this, it, it kind of surprises me um, that after 25 years as a vegan and as an activist, you know, I consider myself an activist and, you know, lawyering was one form of activism. This is another that I feel kind of optimistic about about people's ability to be helped in living their values is this kind of how I think about it. I think most people don't want to harm animals. Most people want to make better choices. But I, I, you know, I think our exploitation of animals and our environment are sort of societal problems that we've been, we kind of go along, we blindly go along with. Uh, you know, I lived 30 odd years before I, I went vegan and I always considered myself a, a huge animal lover. I think that's what I find most exciting. I think what goes on in the investment space goes hand in glove with activism, goes uh, hand in, in glove with the public being educated in a myriad of ways about what exactly is going on, specifically in this case with animal agriculture. And that when you hand somebody a tasty plate of food, they, you know, and they decide to sort of shift the way they eat, it opens them up to kind of live those those better values that they I think mm-hmm. have held all along. So I think what surprises me most is my optimism on that front, even though we this is a very sort of difficult time to be optimistic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that excites me. What excites me is people kind of incorporating a lot more plant foods into their lives. Obviously, I love it if everyone went vegan. Mm-hmm. We, what we kind of strive to do with Veg Invest is to have people reduce the amount of animal products they eat and their way. Right. I think that's sort of a quicker way to have impact. And who knows? Maybe, you know, a lot of those folks will end up going um, 100% plant-based. Yeah. And then, you know, I, I've heard people say when they've changed their diets, whether it's for health reasons or environmental reasons, it's like suddenly, I just had a conversation with a founder the other day. He didn't start all this because of concern about animals. He wasn't thinking about it at all. It was a health thing. You know, once he kind of went down the path, I think he's been vegan for a number of years now, but it just opened him up to the fact that Eating animals is a disaster. It's just been disastrous. 
Yeah, you make me think of filmmaker Liz Marshall mm-hmm. uh, when she made The Ghosts in Our Machine, yeah. which, as you know, is a documentary that follows Joanne MacArthur. She wasn't vegan. And she just thought Joanne had a really compelling story of being like a war photographer of mm-hmm. uh, photographing animals behind closed and shut doors. And then in the process, of course, she went vegan. And now and now she has right. Meet the Future with um, starring Uma Valetti, obviously, you know, which Liz was just on. And Uma has been yeah, on as well. Amazing. But like, it just goes to show you. I mean, she's an yeah. amazing filmmaker. But, you know, mm-hmm. I consider her an activist. Yeah. I don't know what she would say about that. But she's, oh, yeah. And, and uh, Meet the Future is, is sort of the cutting edge it's of, amazing. of all of this. Well, and that's, you know, you're speaking also to like why Marianne and I started our hen house because we do we do have broad strokes for what it means to be an activist. You know, when we started our hen house, we had different, different categories, money Mm -hmm. squawks being one of them, which was like changing the world through entrepreneurship. We had a section for academia. We had a section for the arts. We had a section for animal law, which has expanded to become the animal law podcast. And it does Mm -hmm. take everyone. I mean, I, I think like, You've been very involved in the past mm-hmm. with grassroots as well. When and so did, so was I. Like when grassroots right. was like what you did. I mean, it's it's not like it's not what you do now because we certainly need grassroots, but we need so much more than just. Yeah, one I thing. mean, you can, in a sense, it's almost a testament to to the grassroots activism. I think that right. that there's yeah. such a an evolution sort of happening in the way people think about their food. Again, it, it takes it takes mm-hmm. every approach. I'm not so sure that's a popular <laughs> view these days, but it's it's certainly yeah. one that I that I hold. What is your long term view of the transition out of animal agriculture? Like ten yeah. years from now, we had you on ten years ago. <laughs> if we have you on, okay, we'll have you on before another ten years. Well, let's just say in another ten years, you come back on. What does all of this look like? Wow. Well, Maybe let's say 20 years. Uh, <laughs> okay, 20 well, years. Even in 10 years, I do think that, first of all, let's just be talking, let's even leave uh, cell-based agriculture aside, which has, I think, a longer timeline. But I think within 10 years, we'll be, have, we'll be having an impact on more conventional animal farming. But even talking just about plant-based uh, meat, for example, I think in 10 years, it's going to be at least where plant-based milks are these days. I think plant-based milks have over like ha- have captured like ten percent of the market. I think plant-based meats are are not quite there yet, but I think they're heading in that direction. I think there are a lot of companies, some of our the companies we've invested in, who are really working on you know th- they're laser focused on getting plant-based meats cost competitive to meat from animals, which we know has a, a, you know, incredibly artificially low price point due to government subsidies, et cetera. So it's complicated. But Mm -hmm. um, that's, for example, a company like Rebellious, that's what they're doing. And and basically all the companies who we invest in, I mean, I think they're all focused on eventually getting the price down to a point where this is a quality product, the price is right, we're going to buy it. We're not going to worry whether it's plant-based or animal-based. Wild Earth would be an example. My hope is that that mm-hmm. pet food becomes so affordable that, and again, by reputation, it will be known as a quality protein for dogs. 
that folks will scoop it up without worrying too much. Can my dog be plant-based? You know, I don't think that's, I don't think that's the issue. So I hope it won't be. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And also, I know that you are a very healthy <laughs> whole foods eater. So, you know, a lot of what we've been talking about is like not necessarily what <laughs> you'll find in Amy Trukinsky's fridge, Some but it's One not about newest, you. Uh, it's about investment is a company called Revolution Gelato. I'll give them a little plug. They make absolute mm-hmm. delicious vegan gelato. And I have, thanks to the founder, a whole bunch of revolution in my freezer, which I'm going through at the speed of sound. So. Oh, awesome. Okay, well, that's good. But aside from that, do you see the transition to vegan food ev- eventually heading away from foods that mimic animal products and toward more natural foods or not so you know, much? I think that's definitely, you know, something that among a certain segment of the population is happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, you call me a, a whole foods eater. I mean, there are folks, I think, who eat a lot more, let's call it carefully, than I do. And I think, uh, you, you know, the connection between eating sort of a whole food, if not a whole food plant-based, as we know, that has a very specific meaning. <laughs> but e- eating a, a sort of plant-based diet that is really made up of whole foods as opposed to a lot of packaged foods and that kind of thing. I think, you know, people are seeing that it has amazing results in terms of addressing all kinds of health problems. I won't go into any specifics because I'm not obviously a medical professional, but I think that's really um, catching on. So I, I see both things happening apace, but I, but, you know, I think a lot of the, the animal replacement foods, whether it's meats or cheeses or dairies. I think there's room for those products in in a healthy diet. You know, I, I kind of don't think anyone should be eating any one or two or three things, you know, to the exclusion of, of, mm. of fresh fruits and vegetables and whatnot. That's just common sense. But, you know, I think mm-hmm. for some you know, these replacement foods are are sort of will will be transition foods. And they might go even further and discover that you really, you know, it was at Hippocrates now. Who who said food is medicine? I don't know. But it really is. It, it really, you can have an amazingly yes. um, positive impact on your health by addressing diet as a threshold matter. I'm not saying it's a cure-all for everything, but it certainly helps support right. one's underlying health. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons to be advocating for eating more whole foods, but first we kind of have to get people to shift away from doing the whole foods and animal foods, like just replacing those animal foods with the right. vegan counterpart right. is something that And a lot that, of them are by the way, yeah. I, you know, I think a lot of these companies are focusing on on making products that have are, are clean label as they say few ingredients, mm-hmm. not a lot of, you know, additives and, and healthier for you versions of chicken nuggets, for example. So I think that's certainly something that, right. that most of the companies we work with are concerned with that aspect. And, and certainly, you know, most of these products are healthier than their animal-based counterparts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, Amy, I have some other questions for you about going back to law, but I think I'll save that for bonus. But uh, before you go, one more hat that you're currently wearing 
is as the board chair for Animal Outlook, which is Compassion Over Killing's new name. So can you tell us a bit about what they're doing and why board work is such an important form of volunteering? Sure. Well, Animal Outlook, as you say, it's been recently rebranded, was, as many of your listeners probably know, founded more than 20 years ago. And their earliest work involved doing undercover investigations of factory farms. And I think, you know, AO was instrumental in bringing to light a lot of what animal people knew to be going on inside factory farms, but that, that the public, that was, you know, stuff that was being kept from the public. So over the years, the organizations continued to do investigations. It's developed a really top-notch legal department run by a number of lawyers, really developed by a lawyer, uh, Cheryl Leahy, who I think uh, has been on. Yeah, she's been on a few times. Helmed by Erica Meyer, who took over the organization, I think, 15 years ago, about thereabouts. So it's, it's, and I've been on the board for many years. And what I think is, I forget the question, but why, why I stay on the board Volunteering on a board. I yeah, mean, it's no, another way it's that a really people important can get way for people yeah. to get involved. And depending on what your expertise is, I happen to, you know, I happen to be a lawyer, so I work closely with Cheryl. But you know, I think there's just a gazillion ways as a board member you can help an organization, be it through fundraising, good board governance, networking, all kinds of all kinds of uh, different ways that an organization like AO really needs help. So yeah, I love I love that organization. <laughs> and again, I think yeah. Cheryl and Erica have done just really amazing and continue to do really top-notch work. I totally agree. So, but actually that made me think of, you know, I know you're really passionate about supporting women-run organizations and mm-hmm. also about ensuring that people of the global majority are really center to a lot of the attention that investors are giving. Can you speak to that, especially, you know, in light of this, like, chaotic, otherworldly, horrible year? Like, what, where, does, where does that come in for you as someone who is running the show over at Veg and Bass? Yeah, well, that's, that is really important to me. And, and, you know, at this point, not that, you know, this isn't a checking box thing for me. I kind of make investment decisions based on who's doing the best work. And in our opinion, um, in terms of starting companies who we think are really going to make a difference. And happily, um, a lot of those best people these days are women and, and people of color. So, you know, we're far from where we want to be. Uh, half our portfolio, though, is at this point, uh, either, you know, the companies are founded by either women, people of color, combination thereof. Um, yeah, so it's something we have that's top of mind. But honestly, open your eyes even part way, and they're phenomenal people doing really great work who don't necessarily get the attention of certain kinds of investors. So that that needs to be a goal mm-hmm. of ours. And, and, you know, it's not surprising that it's oftentimes women starting some of the most interesting companies out there. It's like women mm-hmm. have been sort of majority of the animal movement historically. Right. If not the leaders, but that's changed a lot and, and is changing still more. So I think we have work to do. 
Yeah, I I think that just in general, there needs to be a lot of work to do in terms of like centering anti-racism within vegan circles. And that takes every single form on every single level. And certainly the interviews that I've given and the essays I'm editing for Encompass Mm -hmm. essays very frequently bring up the importance of of shifting up like the the money that's being given to the white activists, white led companies, white led organizations. And this is beyond the scope of just Veg Invest because I'm talking about just mm-hmm. across the board, like making sure that we are centralizing BIPOC in terms of like veganism and in terms of like right like the companies we're supporting the nonprofits the people who are bringing on in leadership roles and and that does take effort so, you know like we but we have it to do effort. it it's so not just, it's i'm not I'm, just yeah for equity reasons it's because it's best for it's best for the mission i mean it really is right. you know there's so much talent out there on all fronts that needs to be sort of directed toward toward this this cause that mm-hmm. we sort of hold so so dear, and it's it's kind of yeah, it's counterintuitive not to to uh, utilize it. Yeah, totally. And I'm given so much hope, and I can breathe a sigh of relief knowing that you're you're over there at Veg and Vest. Like, you know, like your brain, your worldview, your history, your animal rights ethos, all of it is at the center of Veg and Vest making these big decisions that, I mean, you're, you're really an unsung hero. Like maybe I'm, I'm yeah. singing you a little bit here, but like just the, you're like, you're behind so many, you know, so many initiatives that ultimately change the world for animals. And so I'm just really glad. I'm just really grateful to you. You're, you're very, very kind, Jasmine. I think I, I feel lucky I've had opportunities, sort of serendipitous opportunities to, you know, spend my my working hours in this way. So I feel lucky. Well, it's time. sort of serendipitous, but it's also like you've worked for it and you've made it happen. So and and I do uh, for the bonus content, I am going to ask you a couple more pointed questions on law and your history with law. So as a lawyer working for animals, but for now, can you please tell our listeners how they can find out more about Veg Invest and get involved? Sure. Well, we have a website. It's veginvesttrust.com. And we don't take other investors into the fund, but I'll give a plug for, um, for an organization called the Glasswall Syndicate. It's a group of investors I think over 150 now, if I'm correct. It's it's all kinds of investors from individuals, venture funds, trusts, mm-hmm. uh, family offices, et cetera, et cetera. It's an opportunity for anyone who is an accredited investor to invest in the kind of companies we've been talking about um, and share diligence and and all of that kind of thing. So it's a it's a great bunch of people. It, it is run by a, an amazing woman by the name of Macy Marriott over at uh, Stray Dog Capital uh, and can't say a good, enough good things about Macy and about Stray Dog. Uh, they're really leaders in, in all of this. So yeah, it's a great community of people and there's a monthly pitch event where companies, uh, it's a video pitch, obviously, strictly it's all by video, but uh, in better times we would we meet um, a couple of times a year for live meetings. So it's a, it's a great community of people. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think Glasswall Syndicate is amazing. And Reg Invest as well. So thank you so much. I hope you stick on with me for a few minutes for our bonus content. But thank you for all that you do and for joining us today on our Hen House. It's truly inspiring. Thank you, Jasmine. You know, I love you guys. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxieties are rising. Our first article is from meetingplace.com, my favorite commentator, Hannah Thompson Weeman. Beware, activist activity is more than just protests. And what she's complaining about this week is the TAFA conference. Uh, That's the conference put on by the Humane Society of the United States every year. And this year, of course, it's virtual and TAFA stands for Taking Action for Animals. And according to Hannah, the conference served as an excellent reminder that while protests and disruptions might have our attention currently, there are other more under-the-radar campaigns we need to be mindful of. And her idea of under-the-radar campaigns is, I don't know, like the stuff that HSUS has been doing right out in the open for as long as I can remember, like legislative efforts. How would you keep that under the radar? Well, I guess the industry keeps it under the radar, don't they? But, you know, we don't. So she has a few quotes. She just thinks that that her readers should be aware of to show them what they're up against. So this is a quote from somebody at the conference. We are working with countries with the most intense farm animal production systems to get them to convert to more humane living conditions for these creatures. Stopping the use of sow gestation crates and battery cages for chickens are at the top of the list. We aim to eliminate extreme confinement methods and promote plant-based solutions. Well, this is pretty much what HSUS has been trying to do for the last 20 years. And it's kind of sad that we're still working on gestation crates and battery cages. I mean, some progress has been made. I'm not saying no, you know, significant progress has been made, but not even remotely enough. But this is hardly like a secret or news. Like, what is she talking about? And it's certainly not under the radar. All right. Animal agriculture and public health. All right. What what she's really upset about is the fact that speakers attempted to capitalize on the COVID-19 pandemic. Oh, my God. And they were doing that by claiming that animal agriculture poses a risk to public health and will cause future pandemics. We should not like be capitalizing by pointing out the truth and trying to prevent a new pandemic. Like, that's just so outrageous. That's me talking, not Hannah. I was being sarcastic. All right, the quote here that, that she's upset about and the people really need to be aware about. In this report from the United Nations and the world's leading experts, they found that the number one risk of pandemics has to do with the increased consumption of meat, eggs, and dairy. Number two has to do with the intensification of farm animals, or in other words, the caging of farm animals in smaller and smaller enclosures. Okay. Like, that's from the UN? (laughs) Like, like this isn't really from an animal rights organization? The UN is pointing this out? Like, what does she want? (laughs) What is under the radar about that? All right. Promoting alternatives. This is, she's really upset about 
the fact that HSUS is also well known for its efforts to quote unquote encourage, aka pressure, restaurants, retail brands, food service companies, and institutions to cut back on meat and serve plant-based options. Now here's her her example of somebody at the conference said that they were doing this by or that they were were working on this kind of topic by bringing locally specialized vegan chefs to major institutions such as restaurant chains, universities and hospitals and teach them ways to integrate affordable and delicious plant-based options into their meals. Okay? Now we all know that that vegan chefs are really really good at vicious precious pressure campaigns. Like like <laughs> like what? I you know Hannah makes her living by making the meat industry really frightened of us. So I guess she has to make us sound a little scarier than we are. I wish we were that scary, but, uh, but you know, we're just bringing locally specialized vegan chefs. That seems pretty benign to me. And it's hard to pressure somebody that way. Oh, here's some vegan food. <gasps> Stop pushing me. Well, actually, that is how people react, isn't it? All right. Our second story is from our friends over at Plant Based News. of Brits admit they feel guilty for eating meat. Yep, that's pretty much it. This was a, uh, but I I find that astounding. It's not just anxieties arising in the industry. It's, people are are getting anxious about this. This was a a survey of a thousand people, just under half, well, 40%, expressed guilt over eating meat to either some or great extent. And 47% said they feel, slightly or strongly agree that it's hypocritical to love some animals and eat others. I find this amazing. I know it sounds ridiculous because why doesn't everybody feel guilty about eating meat? But if you had taken this just five years ago, I do not think, I I think it would never have entered anybody's mind that they should feel guilty about eating meat or that it's hypocritical to love some animals and eat others. Like it never entered anybody's mind. So 40% is pretty high. All right. Our final story. Uh, This is from Feedstuffs, and this is an article by Chuck Jolly. And is it stolen valor or merely borrowed? I don't even know why I bothered to look at this, this article, because it doesn't sound like it's about anything I'm particularly interested in. But it turns out it is. It's about lab-grown products. That's what he calls them, lab-grown products. And he calls them plant-based usurpers of real meat's well-earned culinary heritage. Now, this article is a little confusing because... uh, what stolen valor is, it's, it it's comes up occasionally in the law, and um, there was a law, actually it was held unconstitutional, but still, the point is that you can't, like, stealing valor is like going around pretending that that you were heroic, uh, usually in a military sense, like like somebody who goes into bars and, and dresses up as a, in, a, in a uniform with a bunch of medals and talks about how great they were. That's stolen valor. And, you know, regardless of whether it's illegal or not, or whether it's unconstitutional to make it illegal, which, you know, that's what that case involved. Like, that's not really the point. I mean, the point is that it's a pretty creepy thing to do, to pretend that you're a hero when you're not. And so his point seems to be, it's not entirely clear, that these plant-based meats are stealing the valor of meat by pretending to be meat even though, you know, they're not, and they don't have the true valor of meat, uh, like the me- real meat's well-earned culinary heritage. <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, things like calling it chicken, like C-H-I-K-N, or, or a veggie burger, 
It's nothing more than a load of smashed beans, not a real beef patty. And sausage with an apostrophe in the middle. If that term doesn't insult your intelligence, you have none. Now, here he seems to be arguing not that this is a, that they're deceptive, but that even just pretending, even just acting like like you're trying to imitate meat is trying to steal the valor of meat. But you know, of course, that's not true because if you're telling the truth, then you're not trying to steal the valor of meat. You're just trying to say that you know that meat tastes good and this tastes just as good. In fact, it tastes fairly similar, only it's not meat. But then he's also upset about this Oklahoma law or the lawsuit against it. It's the latest of the labeling laws and Oklahoma passed a law that says that uh, a disclaimer has to be present on the label of a plant-based product as large and prominent as the product's name stating that the food is plant-based. And so that lawsuit is going on and, and he's really upset about that too. That seems that lawsuit is based on the idea, which I think is ridiculous, that that is necessarily deceptive unless the disclaimer is the same size as, as you know, like, like you could have veggie burger and the little veggie would be in script on the side and then it would say burger in larger. But these labels are already out there in the world. They're not fool. They're not confusing anybody. So obviously it's not necessary that everybody pull back all of their labels redo them to make them exactly the same size. It just seems idiotic. So he's also upset about that. He really loves this idea of uh, stolen valor. So he points out that hiding behind a false front to further your aims is too close to stolen valor. It's not stolen valor because you're not hiding behind a false front because you're totally admitting that, that your product is made out of plants, which is like a really, really wonderful thing that you're proud of and it that and it's full of valor. If there's anybody who's going to be valorous, it's it's the plant-based products. I apologize because I'm not sure I was entirely clear, but that's a hard argument to explain because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And that is it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and you're able in these difficult times, you can support us by joining our flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at at ourhenhouse. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Podcast Haven for their work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez. We will be back next week with a brand new show. So don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook group on Tuesday for your bonus content. And join us on Fridays for Flock Fridays, where we do some really cool Zooms that you'll want to join. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Jasmine Singer. And be safe out there. Social distance. Stay home, wash your hands, and listen to podcasts.